Hello and welcome to The Mentor. I'm Mark Boris. Our guest this week is helping to make investing in housing, that's residential housing, a reality for young Australians. His name is Grant Britz. He's a former Olympic swimmer who won bronze at Beijing in the 4x200 and he's now launched a business called Super Estate. Believe it or not, it's the first and only retail super fund in the country that invests in residential property. And it doesn't matter whether you've got $200 in your superannuation you want to put into his fund or whether you've got $500,000 you want to put in his fund, you can put in as much or as little as you want. Since launching in March 2018, Super Estate already has thousands of customers and is growing by the hundreds each month. I'm going to ask Grant about how his sisters struggle, in other words, the problem to buy a home inspired him to set up Super Estate, the solution, and what the secret is behind his success, how he spent hours and hours in practicing his talent purposefully, and how he used opportunities to network and how to get experience from those networks. All of these things have influenced his drive, his desire, and his work ethic in his business today. So let's get into it. Grant Britz, welcome to The Mentor. Thanks for having me, Mark. It's an honour, and it's not often we get uh, former Olympian swimmers in our studio. We get a few boxers, but not many Olympians in swimming. Um, I, I, just tell me about Beijing. Yeah, it feels like a lifetime ago now, to be honest. How long was, when was Beijing? Just remind me, what year was 2008. It? 2008, like yeah. 11 years ago. And um, what stroke were you swimming? Pardon my ignorance, but uh, what stroke were you swimming? No, so I was doing freestyle then. I was freestyle? a part of the relay team. So you're in the relay side, and, and how would you guys go? Mate, we were very fortunate. So managed to get a bronze medal. Yep. Um, it was who kind else, of, well, who, can I, who else is in your, in your team? Like, well, yeah, sure. Team? So look, it was actually, it was one of those surreal life experiences. So the team, there was myself, a guy, Patrick Murphy, Nick Frost, and then Grant Hackett. Oh, yeah. Um, probably like the one experience from my swimming career that I'll never forget. Uh, when I was, I went third in the relay in the final. So I was standing on the blocks and it was Grant Hackett swimming in to me and I was about to dive in. And I remember I was very lucky. I got to go to the Sydney Olympics and watch when I was 12 or 13 or whatever the story was. So Watching him swim in and then go, okay, oh, it's my turn to step up here. Yeah, that was pretty surreal. How old were you at that time? I turned 21 at the games. So, yeah. I mean, I thought I was old then, but... Are you I, a Sydney boy? Yeah, I am Sydney boy. So you're part of N, you're part of N Swiss? Part of N Swiss. Yep. Um, interesting sort of tidbit here. I actually used to swim against your son. Alex. Alex, yeah. So No, but Alex is much older than you. No, I no. remember he used to Oh, do, now, now. Yeah. No, no, you're right, you're right. Now, Alex, <laughs> Alex was... Uh, yeah, so you, because I remember Alex trialed out for the Commonwealth Games in Melbourne. Did you yeah. trial for that? Hey, I did. That was actually the low point. But he was point. a butterfly, though. Yeah, at that point, I was doing backstroke, and that was actually the low point of my swimming career. It was, I almost gave it up then. Uh, well, Alex did give it up then. So yeah. he swam in the trials. I think he got in the final down there in Melbourne in the butterfly, but he was yeah. up against, you know, all the usual, all Clement, et cetera. They were yeah. all having their last crack. Yeah. And, um, and and he, I remember his mum and I split up at that time. So I think the trials in February or something like that. I can't remember. And uh, and he said, Dad, I'm doing the HSC this year. Mum's not here. Um, you're just you're never here. I'm never there. I had a I had a like a he was the, my boys moved in me when we split up. And uh, and uh, it was just too much for him because the toughness. I have to say, like I've done a lot of different sports in my life where I've trained hard for them and got to quite quite high competitive levels, but. 
swimming, my experience with watching my son in swimming, that is the loneliest and toughest sport there is. Um, you're, you're, you might be part of a team, got it, but uh, really when you're training, you're on your own the whole time. When everything else, you, you can run with, t- with teammates. If you're a runner or if you're a boxer, you can you can chat to people and have a laugh. When you're swimming, you can't talk to anyone because you've got your head in the water watching that bl- those black and white stripes. Yeah. And you're just going up and down, up and down. I used to watch him sometimes. we get up at 4.30 in the morning. I said, take him to train. And he trained at Cranbrook in those days. Then he went out to – he was out at um, Homebush there for a little bit. But, like, everybody walks in. They're all half asleep, um, parents included. Yeah. Uh, the kids are half asleep. You, you you would have been experiencing this. And the coach says, okay, do a 1,500 warm-up, which is 1.5 kilometres. You know, that's a warm-up. And then uh, you train, then you, in the school holidays, you go back at lunchtime and, then the, and you go back in the evening. And all your all your uh, competition is in the school holidays, like your, yep. your, your metros, your states, and your uh, Australian titles, nationals, all go through that period from, like, so you get no school holidays. Is that right? Am I right? Mate, exactly, yeah. It was, it was bloody tough. And I remember at, at the time I had to sort of miss out of, on a lot of things with school. You can't go with your mates on Friday night. Missed out on formals and all yeah, that kind of yeah, stuff. Yeah, totally. At the time I thought it was a massive sacrifice, but now I'm kind of glad I did do that as a kid. Yeah, I always ask people about their background. But growing up, when you're used to and have experienced those really strict regimes, that is having the ability to sacrifice, how do you think that flips you? Does that flip into your business life? I mean, do, do you think it assists you? Is that one of the things you're grateful for? I think so. Look, I actually found, like when I finished school um, and like I completely bombed out at the Commonwealth Games trials, didn't make the team and I was actually sort of thought about giving swimming away and I thought, no, I'm going to switch. Who were up against in the backstroke? It was a bunch of guys back there. It was Matt Welsh and a few of the oh, yeah. the big names from back in the day. Yeah. Um, but I kind of realized I was never going to make it as a backstroker and that's when I made the flip to freestyle because I thought, well, as an individual, it's really tough because you have to come top two. And I yeah. said, well, <laughs> I like my chances of coming top six and making the relay team a lot more. So made that switch, but then I actually found I sort of, rather than giving it away, I moved to Canberra, joined the AS, and then for a period of about six months, all I was doing was swimming. And I actually found my my sport kind of suffered a bit because I had too much time on my hands. So that's when I was like, nope, got to enroll in uni. And I kind of found when I was under the pump on all angles of my life, so not really maintaining too much balance, but just being, you know, a lot of work, a lot of training, a lot of study, that's when I actually got the best out of myself. So you, where'd you go to school? Out west, um, yeah. Castle Hill. So where'd you train? Which club? I trained at Homebush. Homebush. So oh, so you, were, you were at Ensworth most Yeah, you? I was spending a couple of hours in the car every day. Yeah, yeah. Um, Mum and dad driving you. Oh, you mean oh, after you point, had your own yeah. license? Yeah, so I'm pretty happy when I got my P's. Oh, mate, I was so happy when Alexander <laughs> got his license. I couldn't wait. I fucking got him a car straight away. I said, mate, you're on your own. I'll yeah. just put the alarm on for you and get the fuck out of here. And uh, and it didn't work out very well. He went yeah. back and you can't go back, by uh, the way. No, exactly. It's very hard. And then, mate, the big thing was I kind of found like, when I was sort of smashing myself, having lots to do, not giving myself that free time, did the best and then sort of took that into my business So what did you do well. at uni? What did you study? I did a double degree with commerce and finance. Yeah. Um, I mean, when I enrolled in uni, I wasn't too sure what I was going to do. Like, you know, I'd been very focused on sport and my old man, he was an accountant. So he said, I'll maybe do commerce, do accounting. And then during the course of that, I got exposed to finance and got a bit interested in it. And that's actually when I went to the Olympics, I was like, okay, well, this was great, but... At the time, I also realized that I couldn't really make a living doing that, especially here in Sydney. There's no money in it. No. I th- well, that, look, when I was 18, I thought I was killing it because I was earning maybe, you know, seven, eight grand a year. Mm. Um, pretty tough to buy a place in Sydney on that. So, yeah, sort of saw finance as something I was really interested in. And I was very fortunate. I met some really interesting, smart people through my swimming, like 
did some charity events and met one of the sort of top fund managers here in Sydney through a charity event, um, David Paradise. Oh, yeah, I know and, David. Yeah, he gave me a, you know, let me come in, do some part-time work and learn a lot from the guys so there. he gave an internship? Yeah, it was more just like I was still at uni and he was like coming a few days a week and got to tag along to most of his meetings and just basically shadowed him for a year, which was amazing. Oh, that, that, now that's a really good point you raised. So let's just go back a little bit because I want to sort of build up the fabric here. You know, uh, here we've got a, a young man from out west Dad's an accountant, so you know dad. Dad's in a business sense conservative, but steady. They put in the hours, but it is a, a fairly conservative environment. You put in the hours, the time, the effort, but you get a disappointment. That's the Commonwealth Game Trials in Melbourne. You yep. down in Melbourne, yeah. Yeah. As I said, it's the toughest gig there is, relative to the reward. Um, I mean, boxing is pretty tough. But the rewards are better because you sort of get to know people, you hang out, you get a skill you can take through your life, you know, like whatever. But like swimming, yeah, the reward is even if you even if you win the the the, the gold medal, it doesn't mean you're going to make quit out of it. Exactly, and it's it's all and you need to have these various layers in order to work out how you leverage from your effort. And what I'm finding interesting here is something you just said about Dave Paradise. Um, who, by the way, is a big fund manager in, the, in this country for all those people who don't know who he is. Um, he's a, a really successful big fund manager and a big investor in lots of um, asset classes around the country. So what you've done here is a couple of things. Is you put in the effort, you've gone back, had another crack. In other words, you weren't, weren't going to accept failure. You, As a result of not accepting failure, you, you pivoted yourself. Yep. So you turned yourself from a backstroker into a freestyler. But by the way, you, you, you changed the odds. So you went the odds from uh, uh, having to be in the f- top two to having to be in the top four. That's a, quite a significant change in the odds. That's a, that's a really smart thing to do in business, you know, in terms of pivoting, changing your odds, the odds of winning. In other words, yeah, and there was a rising tide coming, which was the, the Olympics. So you knew if the odds worked in your favor and you put in your time and effort – you already knew that um, you could probably get there. You, you probably had a sense of your freestyle ability. You probably thought, well, I probably can get there if I can shave a half a second off here and there. Yeah. Were you talking about 4 by 200 100 Yeah, 4 by 200 4 by 200 Look, it was – I mean, I believed myself and yep. credit to my parents. They believed in me, but it was bloody tough with the coaches. Who was coaching stuff. you? Um, so at the time I was – Tony Shaw was coaching me. Yeah, but then yeah. when I made the switch, I actually went to Doug Frost, who was Thorpe's yep. original coach. Yep. and. He smashed me. Right. And you, well, that's good. And, you, and you're out there with all the best swimmers. So, yeah. you know, NSWIS is, is the New South Wales Institute of Sport, which is, um, for those people who don't know what NSWIS is, in Homebush. And, you know, you're training at a 50 meter pool and it's a, uh, you know, you can train all year round, which is great because it's indoors and you're training with the best, other best competitors. So if you hang around with the best competitors, you know, like, and if you're trying to make an equivalent view today, you know, people listening to this, you might not be a get there, you're not going to be a swimmer. But, you got to look at who, what the best are, follow the best on Instagram, follow the best on Facebook, follow the best, go to the best seminars, follow the best, make sure they're the best. So, you know, wh- what we're talking about here is actually training with the best. That'll bring the best out in you, having the best coach, being in the best environment, being strict about your regime. In other words, you're forced to, you, you know, like you got to swim Saturday morning, so you can't go out Friday night. You gotta, I don't know if you were swimming Sunday morning, so you, a lot of times they have competitions, you know, you do your time trials and shit like that. Um, not giving up everything, <laughs> swimming during the summer. Um, but what's really important here, what I'm just finding out from Grant is that he learned how to network. Now, he just quickly passed over the fact that he met David Paradise. Sometimes in these environments, swimming, for example, you get 
parents of swimmers or people who just want to pr- help promote the Olympic team come to an event? Is that what how, how is that how David Paradise got involved? No, it was actually look. It's one of those weird stories. I was at uni and I got this phone call and sort of someone in the swimming network and they said, "Hey, there's a charity event out in Scone. Um, would you mind helping out?" Someone else couldn't do it. Yeah, and so I, you asked to turn up. Yeah, and I, I thought Scone was a lot closer than it is. It's a long um, way. It's about three, four hours away. Yeah. yeah, I thought it was like an hour drive. And I was like, yeah, no problem. Friday night, I'll be there. Well, okay, just stop there. There's a willingness, okay? A lot of people say, oh, fuck that. Friday night, I'm not doing that. Even if even if you did know it was three or four hours away. but And sometimes you're just taking a chance. Sometimes by being a little naive, like you were, yeah. um, it works. You know, um, don't overthink it. Just say, yeah, no worries. So, but even if it was an hour away, a lot of people say, no, I'm fucking too busy for right now. I don't want to yeah. do it. It's a charity event. I don't want to do it. But that's sort of part of your obligation as a swimmer. No, exactly. Or, or as a competitor. You know, so what happened? You turned up? Yeah, they, they were raising money to rebuild. Like, I think their stadium had collapsed around their swimming pool and showed up just, you know, I was doing the charity swim and David Paradise was sponsoring the whole thing. I had no idea who he was and then started chatting to the guy. Why still. was he? What, tell me, why was David doing that? So he used to live out there. He used right. to commute into Sydney. So um, he was just supporting his local community and he was paying for a fair bit of the rehabilitation of the pool and started chatting to him and he said, oh, well, what are you doing? And I said, oh, I've just done the Olympics, explained all that. And then he's like, oh, no, work-wise, what's, what are your plans? And I said, oh, well, I'm at uni doing commerce, like finance. And he was like, well, come in on Monday and let's have a chat. Oh, cool. And, yeah. and you then knew enough to do that? Enough, yeah. The, but that's all it takes. You know, just that one, taking that one chance. Yeah. And you did it. And you went, and so, and what did you learn from David Paradise? I mean, what did you do there? Look, so, yeah, David, he's one of the sort of, Best. He's a, he's a small cap fund manager, so he yep. spe- specialises on small listed companies. Yep. Um, I know he's invested in some of my businesses over yeah. the, in the past. Look, he's he's a very astute as an investor. He's great at looking at businesses, but I think the thing that I learned about him and the thing that I've taken away the most is the way he ran his own business. Um, so he he was extremely lean. So he worked very hard. He expected all of his people to work hard. He rewarded them, of course, but he made sure there was no fat in his business, and he was very very good at doing that. And then also that's what he took into looking at his investments. So in everything I've done, I've just gone, okay, how can we be as efficient as possible with this business? How can we reduce unnecessary costs? And can I ask you a question? Yeah. And I'll, I want to take you back to swimming. Just give our audience a bit of a sense of, you know, 200 meter freestyle event. What would be the difference between first, second, and third, like in terms of time? Well, First through eighth, right? It can be less than 0.2 of a second. Um, okay, and is that a touch or is it not even a touch? Uh, fingertips. Fingertips. So to make the Olympic team, I think there was, yeah, it was 0.4 of a second or something first through eighth. So that's the difference between having an individual swim at the Olympics yep. or watching it on TV. Right, so we're talking about 0.4 and probably even gets closer at some point. Um, 0.4 of a second is uh, if you imagine it, like if I'm talking to the audience, if you imagine you're swimming down the pool and uh, 0.4 of a second, there's not much in it, especially when, when you're talking at an Olympic level, um, the speed of which they move their arms, et cetera, and, and they move down the pool. So that means you've got to be really efficient. Yeah. I mean, you can't have a hair out of place when you dive in that pool. You can't have um, the goggles and the cap, if you wear a cap, have got to be perfectly positioned. You got to have exactly the right amount of food the night before. You got to go to the toilet exactly right. You got to everything's got to be perfect. Yeah. You talk about efficiency. Swimming is the most uncompromising sport 
there is in terms of a place. Because I remember with Alex, like sometimes we go over to now. I remember we went to nationals in Perth once, and he 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 got second or something by a hundredth of a second, like because he had and he had an allergy the night before, and I was freaking out. But a hundredth of a fucking second, like that's nothing. And uh, but I actually saw the other kid beat him. Like I saw bang bang. It was like it was nothing. Like I don't even know I could record a hundredth of a second. Do you think either instinctively or consciously? What you saw in David Paradise at any stage, you thought to yourself, I know that feeling, I get that because of your swimming. Look, at the time I probably didn't realize it, but I think the the parallel between swimming and what David does, it's that repetition of going over and making sure you're like, when you come to game day and for him, when he's making an investment decision, he's gone through the motions thousands of times before. Same with swimming. Um, Like when, yeah, when you're on the blocks, you're not worried about the little things because You've done them every single day for years. Um, it's the same with business. If you know, if one day you expect yourself to do really well, but you haven't done anything or put in the work for the last two years, it's not going to happen. But it's all about that, yeah, repetition and making sure you're always performing at that certain level. So it's second nature. What's the difference between you and taking advantage in a positive way all those things you learned and experienced? and then using the networks to take advantage of those networks compared to or contrasted with some of those individuals who you know who I'm talking about who had exactly the same experience as you but just went the total opposite direction. A lot what, of, what is it? Look, a lot of swimmers have sort of had a tough time. Well, boxers, I know, but same. What, what is it? Like some just take it and make take advantage of it but what is it that what's the difference do you reckon is it your family upbringing Look, or what is it i think the thing for me i felt very fortunate to be there because when i looked around at a lot of the guys i thought they were a lot more talented they were bigger physically you know stronger i think the thing that sort of my parents really instilled in me i always made sure i did that a little bit extra that no one else saw um, so look, this is a bit of a secret from my swimming career, but I do oh, all my- we love a secret here. So. Yeah. So look, I would do all my training, do all my weights, do everything with all the other guys. But then every single night, Monday through Friday, I used to go home and do my own gym session. My parents had built up this special like swimming pulley machine it's, for the audience. It's kind of like a weights machine that's specifically designed to help your swimming stroke. Did you lay down or was it- Yeah, exactly. Or, or, it's like a bench that you lay down and yeah, it's like, a Yeah, like I remember setup. those. You can get, you can buy those now. You can get them. Yeah, yeah. Um, we had it sort of custom built and I'd go home and do another hour's worth of work that no one else knew I was doing, not not even my coaches. Um, it was like my little bit of edge. But because of all of that, I knew I was putting in this extra work, so I had that confidence. But I also then felt very fortunate. So any opportunity that came my way, I made sure I wanted to grab it with both hands. Maybe the difference is you really wanted it. Yeah, think, look, I mean, you know these guys. Do you think, do you, think you wanted it more? Oh, or, I, I or think do you think they just had natural talent? You know, is it, they oh. had all this talent and they thought, oh, we're already, you know, number one. What do you think? Yeah, I, look, everyone, everyone wanted it, but I think it was, I kind of always, I knew they were probably better than me. So that Did you want of, them more? No, well, I think that just the, the competitive nature to kind of see someone who I was like, yeah, well, I know he's better than me, but I still think I can beat him. Yeah. So figuring out how I could do that. And then even, I mean, race psychology and stuff, I used to love that, like, Training stuff, some some training sucks. Like it, yeah. it does, period. But racing, like I used to love racing. Just standing there next to some guy who should annihilate you and just knowing you can still get him. And did you play mind games? Yeah, I used to, uh, my race tactics and stuff, like I used to know who, who I was racing and if some guys I knew if I got out quick enough and got far enough in front in the first half of the race, they would just die mentally. Like I knew physically I couldn't swim over them, like just because 
they were just better. Yeah. So if I got far enough out in front, I knew they'd give up, even though knowing full well they probably could swim over me. It was so it's about a game game. plan. Yeah, exactly. You, you, I mean, I think in business too, gaming situations is really important and or probably another way of putting it is taking risks, calculated risks. But like to me, business is very much like swimming in a lot of, in a lot of regards. You've got to put in all the miles. It doesn't matter whether or not you have the world's best talent. I mean, unrewarded talent is almost a proverb today. Um, it's about persistency and consistency. And if you can overlay that with talent, that you're even much better. But if you're persistent and consistent um, with your regime, you'll beat talent if it doesn't put in the hours. I mean, I often talk about this, this you know, we talk about the 10,000-hour theory, you know, the, the thing that Malcolm Gladwell always talks about. It's about purposeful practice at whatever you do for 10,000 hours makes you an expert. But you can't avoid putting the 10,000 hours if you want to become an expert. I don't give a shit how good your talent is. So if someone's out there right now thinking, well, I'm going to launch this new business and I'm going to be blah, I'm going to be really good at it. Well, dude, you need to spend a long time practicing your your talent and or your skill before you actually can actually before you can actually become the expert. Swimmers are the best example. I don't give a shit how big and strong you are and lean you are and how good your stroke is and all that sort of stuff. You need to put in the hours. Is that yep. right? 100%. I mean, even the like Ian Thor, for example, like when he was a kid, his coach was the toughest guy in the swimming world. Like I trained with him for a year and it was brutal. I mean, Thorpe, he was obviously extremely talented, but he was smashing his body every single week when he was a kid. So, and that's the same in business. Yeah. I mean, you can't, I mean, people think, oh, you know, just they, sometimes they look at me and they say, oh, wow, he just set up this, no, no, I've been in this business for five years, the mental business I'm talking about now, and the home loan business I've been there for 20 years, um, maybe more. So, and it, I only became really good at the home loan business because I, was, I sat at it for so long and there is some, another piece of this, it's not just putting in the hours, it's about purposeful practice. In other words, when you're doing your 10,000 hours up and down the pool, or when you're doing your 10,000 hours in your business, or when you're doing the 10,000 hours in my business, it's about making sure that everything you do is right. So it's a good example in swimming is that you hit the wall right or you turn right. Otherwise, you start building up these stupid fucking habits where you stuff, stuff up your race. So, I mean, I guess in terms of the, br- br- the brutal regimes that you're talking about with someone like Thorpe, let's, let's not even talk about Thorpe, let's talk about you. You experienced Thorpe's coach. Your coach would have been on you about kicking and making sure your kick beat was right. And when you hit the wall, you hit the wall right. And when you turned, you turned right. So it was purposeful practice, which we're going to do in business, which you did in in the business of swimming when you were a swimmer. Is that that right? Are we talking? Exactly. Well, that's all. In a race, you didn't have to worry about nailing your turn because I'd done thousands upon thousands of perfect turns in training. So, so exactly when you're right. practicing, you're thinking about the turn and you're thinking about how can I just do a little bit better or what did I do wrong with, on that occasion? And your coach, your mentor, I guess, is sort of yeah. saying, hey, Grant, try this. Is that right? Are we talking oh, exactly. about exactly. And you'd experiment as well and yeah. try different things and figure out what's, you know, what's the best for you. And, and just practice over and over again. And I want to say this to the audience. Purposeful practice. I want to, there's not just practice at your talent and or skill the thing you want to be great at, great at, is being purposeful about it. It's, as, as Grant, you said, you, you're, um, you're trying new things, you're being experimenting, you're not being stupid. Then you practice and practice and practice that particular thing and try and 
become as efficient as possible. Yeah, exactly. David Paradis is as efficient as possible. Now he's an Olympian. He's an Olympic standard when it comes to small caps. That guy. Yeah, gold he's medalist. Fun. He's the yep. best. Of course, you took a bit of a risk. I mean, I say this to people all the time. Fuck, get off your ass. You've got an opportunity. Go. You're going to go. So don't say, oh, man, I don't want to go. Don't even think about it. Don't, don't overthink it. Just get in the car and drive there and see what happens. Maybe nothing yeah. happens. Something does happen. You weren't doing it to get a reward. You did it because, oh, well, I'm a swimmer. This is a swimming event. I'm in the Olympic team. I've got to go out and do this. This is sort of my – this is what I do, right? You didn't overthink it, did you? No, no, no. Like I literally got a call and I was actually sitting in a uni lecture and I was just like, yeah, sure, cool, I'll do it. Yeah, yeah. Because I often do this, I think, fuck, I don't feel like doing this. I don't feel like doing this. And then after I think, that was worth it because I'm always looking for something positive out of it and uh, because otherwise you drive yourself mad having done it in the first place. So your experience as a swimmer got you to experience two great things that are important for your business, which we're going to talk about in the second half. But two great things, that is purposeful practice, taking that experience into your business environment because business is no different. The business of what you do now is no different to the business of being a swimmer, especially when you're trying to be an Olympian. And that's the first thing you did. You, you did purposeful practice. But the second thing you did is you, under, you, got, you got a sense of, I'll have a crack here. I'll go and see. I'll go to this event. I didn't overthink everything. I just did it. It wasn't too much skin off your nose. It wasn't a big deal. And that sort of takes us straight into what you're doing for your business now. Okay, I'm back here with Grant Britz. Um, Grant was a bronze medalist in the 4x200 uh, Olympics in Beijing. Yep. Yeah. Wow, that would have been interesting being in China at that time. Well, we just were established a few things. Like his experience as a young man, as a teenager actually, um, of being an Olympian and what it takes to get into those environments, pivoting, you know, putting in the hard work and effort, purposefully practicing your 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 task and your talent, then learning how to network and not overthinking things, and then once you network, then having willingness to just take things on, just do things. Like he had an opportunity to work with David Paradis, and at the same time he was doing university studies. Grant, where did that take you after? What, I mean, what was your first like? Let's call it real job. Like, where did you work? So first real job, I was very fortunate. I managed to get a like a grad job at Merrill Lynch as an investment banking analyst. So essentially the job was- Merrill's here. Yeah, Merrill's here in Sydney. Um, so the job is you're trying to help companies buy and sell other companies and work in capital markets and so on. So so you're in the corporate- Corporate advisory. Yeah, corporate yeah. advisory. And I, I started off in, I was actually put in the mining team, which I didn't really have much of an affinity for mining when I started, but being in Australia, it was great. And at the time, the Chinese were buying up a lot of Australian mines. So I got to work on some really interesting deals. Um like we actually sold a bunch of gold mines to Chinese companies and the the real skill set that was drilled into us and sort of my whole sort of focus was valuation. So going, okay, analytics, well, having proper analytics on it. Exactly. Going, well, if any company, how do you value it? What, mm. What's it worth? And what are the different ways you can do that? So I spent years f- first focused on mining companies, but then after a few years, I, I was fortunate enough to get a job in New York with Merrill's. So I went over there and did the same thing, but with a whole range of companies. Do you think um, being an Olympian, Olympian, that actually helps those sorts of environments? Because I do know those investment bankers do like to have 
rugby union players, sports stars generally around them. Yeah. Do you think that helped? Um, look, the the thing was, the expectation was you worked extremely hard um, and I knew I could outwork anyone. That was what I took from my swimming. Um, so I'm, there were times when I was doing 100, 110 hours a week at the desk, like actually sitting there behind a screen seven days a week. Um, it's good because you learn very quickly. When you're doing sort of two, three work, two, three weeks worth of work in one week, skill set gets very good very quick. Yeah, you sharpen up fast. Yeah. And after. then after Merrill's, what happened? So after about four years at Merrill's, I, I was in New York and wanted to come back to Sydney and got a job at a place called Optiva. So it's an algorithmic trading firm. So they use quant strategies to trade financial instruments. Yeah, for, for example? For example, options in Hong Kong, they trade Hong Kong index and they use sort of highly sophisticated strategies and infrastructure to go, okay, well, we think this one option is worth, let's say, hypothetically, 15 cents and someone else thinks it's 14 cents, so then you buy or sell based off what you think it's worth. Right, so it's it's sort of very mathematical and it's um, you're manipulating the mathematics to either – uh, buy and sell out, hold, whatever the case may be. And were you doing it on behalf of other people? So interesting business. It's actually, it's a private company and it's all private money. It's a couple of Dutch billionaires. Um, it's, it's a strange environment and they, they have operations all over the world. Um, like it was a great environment. Like you learn a lot, but I think the the thing that ultimately sort of why I didn't stay there long-term was when you're working very hard and you're doing well for yourself, but you're kind of just making money for billionaires. It's not, <laughs> it's not that rewarding, yeah, you know. Yeah, Even yeah. if you kill it for them, it's like they're already extremely rich. Yeah, yeah, so. yeah. I mean, clearly, you want to own your own business and uh, have your own business. Um, what? Where did that idea? Where did your idea come from for so, your new business venture? Which is oh, and by the way, which year are we talking about? So, well, it was actually a personal experience that sort of like I didn't set out to start my own business. So, in 2016, I'd been working for a number of years. I'd been very strict on myself and had squirreled away a fair bit of savings. So like, you saved money. Yeah. yeah, lived very frugally. Um, 2016, I was like, okay, well, I wouldn't mind actually. Like I'd always loved property. Like it's something that, I know when you work in finance, a lot of your colleagues kind of try, you know, steer you away from, but I'd always loved it and wanted to do it. So I said, nope, going to do it. I'm going to buy a house. But rather than just making an emotional decision and going and chatting to some local real estate agents, I sort of looked at myself and said, well, your key skill is valuation and you've been doing all this financial investment for you know your whole career now, why don't you actually build a bunch of models and take a bit of an analytical approach to this, what is the biggest investment of your life at that point? And that's what I did. Um, so late 2016, looking around, was in Sydney, um, found a place and on all of my numbers, I knew it was a cracker. Like it just it almost didn't make sense. I knew it was too good to be true. Um, so pushed and pushed and pushed, got the deal done. And then it was actually during the settlement of that because, like, I knew that there was the price we bought it for was so far below what it should have gone for. It was just crazy. One of the neighboring properties came on the market during our settlement and sold for a ridiculous amount above what we paid, practically identical. So that was kind of the starting point where I was like, okay, if you actually take an analytical approach to property, there's money to be made. And, and, Okay, so you bought one property, but then how'd you go into business? Well, what? Sure. So, well, look. How'd you turn that into a business? I mean, clearly what you're doing is you're taking all the skills that you've learned in the past from all the various environments. You've applied that to real estate. But what was it that – when did the light turn on and say, oh, hang on, I can turn this into a business? So the first the first point, I was at that time I was still working at Optiver, and I was like, well, 
that business is spending hundreds of millions of dollars on infrastructure and technology to compete for very small amounts of money and against very sophisticated players. Literally, you're talking about a cent here and there. Exactly. But they buy, but they do it. Thousands uh, and thousands of times a day. Exactly. So it's more volume. Yeah. Volume, low margin, high, 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 high volume. Yeah. But so I looked at this and I was like, okay, well, off, you know, no infrastructure and a little bit of hard work. I was like, well, there's, sort of on paper made a really good sum of money here. So how do we actually turn that into a business? So my first mindset was going, okay, how do you institutionalize property investment, residential property investment? Because here in Australia, residential funds don't really exist or didn't exist before us. They're a thing in the US and some other more developed markets. You want to explain what a residential fund is? Sure. So a financial fund that buys houses and then rents them out. So what, what, what Grant's talking about here is we have funds where we put our super into it or our investment money into it and they might go and buy shares in the share market or they might go and buy bonds in the bond market. What Grant's talking about here is a fund which we might put our money into that goes and buys residential property. Exactly. Is is it geared? No. No no gearing. So you just pay cash. Pay cash. There's no no leverage. Okay. So just so the audience understands this, you're not putting in, you can put in half a million, but you're, you're probably putting small amounts of money in. You really, what you're trying to do is put it towards the people who only who can't afford to buy a house but want to have an interest in a residential fund. Exactly. So the way the idea for the business came about, I was like, okay, how how do we institutionalize property investment and make you know it an investment class that anyone can have access to? Um, I was actually then talking about all this property investment stuff with my family and my little sister. She's a, you know, a swim instructor. She teaches six year olds how to do freestyle. Um, she was like, oh, well, I, I wouldn't mind buying a property. Can you help me? And I was like, okay, well, do you have any savings? No, <laughs> none. She was like, oh, okay. And then we're like, well, you've got superannuation. She's got like, you know, she had 10, 15 grand at the time. She's like, cool. Well, how do I use that to buy a property? And like, you know, if you've, you got, 15, take, no, if you've got 15 grand in super, there's nothing you can do. Plus um, you can't take the 15 grand and put the property into your hands. You can, the super fund can, can, invest in property itself, but it needs to borrow money usually. Yeah. If you, if you want to buy a property yourself through super, you have to do self-managed. Yeah. Um, and in order to do that, there's you actually need quite a lot of money then. You need um, a couple like hundred as, thousand because yeah, it costs exactly. too much money. As, as a 20 or even a 30-year-old, it's probably not going to be possible. And I think I just want to explain, because this is an opportunity that Grant understood, but probably a lot of the audience don't understand, particularly for the under 30. Um, the general rule of thumb is in order to manage your, to have a self-managed super fund, given all the rules and regulations and all the costs of abiding by those rules and regulations, you know, employing an accountant and all that sort of stuff, as opposed to just putting your money, money into some other, you know, other environment like an industry fund, et cetera, where they do all that. The general rule of thumb is you need around two hundred dollars to $250,000 worth of money in your super already. Yep. And you don't normally have that accumulated until you're well and truly into your 40s. So if you're, you know, 20 to 30 or whatever, and you've only got, Fifteen to twenty thousand. It doesn't make sense to have a self-managed super fund. Is exactly. that correct? Correct. Right. Okay. So look, the where the penny really dropped when when I was just chatting to my sister, and because her personal position was she liked property, she'd like to get involved with it. She didn't really care too much about the stock market or financial investments. So what we realized was her living in Sydney as a twenty-something-year-old. She actually, at present, had zero financial exposure to residential property and no savings. So the scary reality was she might actually go through her whole life and never own property, which, you know, it's not necessarily a bad thing. But then when we started thinking about 
her financial assets. It's like, well, all of her wealth, her super is invested in financial assets and she doesn't have any exposure to property. And when you say financial assets, basically what you're saying here, Grant, is that whoever was managing her, her superannuation, her fund, um, all the money that she was putting into super every year accumulated, when you say financial assets, you mean probably stock market or share market style assets. Exactly, yeah. yeah. Australian West shares, international shares. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah, okay. So in other words, you got 100% exposure to our share market, whatever those particular stocks were, and zero exposure probably to real hard real estate assets. Yeah. Yeah. So then when we're when I was looking at that, it's like, okay, well, you know, in 40 years' time when she can actually retire, what actually matters? Like, does she care what Telstra share price is and is that going to impact her day-to-day life? Probably not. But will it matter if, you know, what she has to pay for rent or will it matter what housing costs? Like, Absolutely. And when I looked at that as just general, does it make sense to be exposed to the most important asset class that actually really impacts your life? I was like, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So what did you do? So that that was kind of when we said, okay, well, we want to make it- Who's we? We, well, myself and I, I've, I've got some people who wanted to support me to right. set this up. Yep. Um, so we set out and we said, okay- we can build a superannuation fund that's actually going to really help people because we're building something they understand, they care about, but is also giving them this financial exposure. And then on the flip side as well, we go, well, there's also going to be long-term social utility and benefit because as a super fund investing in houses, we're actually providing our tenants with a great place to live. We're a very stable and predictable landlord. Like We actually want our tenants to be very happy because if they're looking after the properties, that's good for everyone. So as we grow, we kind of see, you know, we're helping our our members and our investors because we're hopefully generating good financial returns for them. But then on the social side, we're also providing good houses for people to live in. And most people rent at some point in their lives. And I had some pretty shitty rental experiences myself, um, like getting kicked out of places just before Christmas and so on ah, and stuff like that. Another worse. Yeah. So th- that's why we actually thought, oh, well, th- there is actually benefit here for the people who we're renting to as well. So a, a good purpose, a right purpose. So did you, so did you establish a super fund? Yeah. So in, in terms of figuring out how to actually help people, I mean, we couldn't just set up an investment fund because taking my sister as an example, she had no savings. If we set up just a regular investment fund, she'd be like, oh, that's cool, but- I've got no money. I've got no money, exactly. Other than, other than in my own superannuation. Exactly. So that's why we're like, okay, by doing superannuation, it essentially means that there's no restrictions. Like everyone has some super. It doesn't matter if you've got a hundred bucks or a hundred thousand, you've got something. Mm. Um, so that's when we actually embarked on the journey to go- Let's build a super fund that does something a bit different, a bit real, and we think should have a strong affinity for young Australians. So, and and given the the choice provisions in the superannuation, she exercises her choice to choose to take her superannuation away from wherever she currently was at the yep. time into your super fund. Exactly. So, look, and you call it super estate. Yeah, super estate. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So it's a superannuation fund for residential real estate. Yeah. Is that, is that the right description? It is. Look, I, we're still, we do everything your regular super funds do. Like we still invest in Australian shares, international shares, infrastructure, cash. Um, but we give our members choice of how much exposure they would like to property. 
To so, residential property. Correct, to houses. Right. Um, because all super funds invest in some type of property, but yep. every other fund, when they say property, they mean office towers. Yeah, they're buying the A&P Centre or something. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, whereas we're the only investor and only super fund focused on actual houses. So you, you're actually buying houses. Correct, Your yeah. super fund, with the money that it's got from your participants, superannuation mm. participants, members. like your sister, yeah, your members, um, actually goes and buys a house in Canberra or goes and buys a house in Sydney or goes and buys a house in Brisbane or somewhere. Yeah. And you obviously got rules around it. Yeah. So you're not going to buy it in postcodes which have less than, you know, so many thousand people live there or whatever. I mean, the, the, you've got rules around Yeah, your, we've got a mandate. Yeah, so, so you and do you have a um, an improved investment criteria like uh, and, a, and a committee that sort of sits over the top of it and says um, you can't invest in, I don't know, some country town, for argument's sake, that's got only 123 people live there because there's, because the problem is if you ever go to sell it, you're never going to get a, a buyer. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. So is it mostly metro? City yeah, exactly. Prison? So look, the, some of the key principles, but like some of the other problems when we looked more broadly and sort of how we structured what we invest in, like whenever anyone invests in property, like if you're actually fortunate enough to get your foot on the property ladder, there's a few big hurdles and issues that we saw and we wanted to address. So the first one is, Normally, people have all their eggs in one basket because you'll buy one property. Mm. So we wanted to diversify our portfolio. So we try focus on all the major cities around the country. So you spread your risk by spread being risk. in major city metropolitan areas. Exactly. City metropolitan Cities, yeah. yeah. So cl- close to all the major employment hubs. Yeah. So Sydney, yeah. Brisbane, Melbourne. Um, the next thing was when typically when people buy property, they've got a lot of leverage, which increases the risk. Um, what do you mean by that is you bought, they borrow a lot of dough? Exactly. I might have 90% alone. Yeah, yeah. Um, Which it can work out in the long term, but when we looked at it, we'll, we sort of said, well, this is people's retirement savings. We want to go about this in the most conservative and safest way possible. Yep. So we actually said, well, let's not put any debt in there. So in other words, your fund does not borrow any money to buy these we houses. We don't use any debt. So what that means is you then get the rental income. That's actually income going into growing our member super balance plus than any long-term capital growth. Right. So, and how big is the fund now? Where are you at? So, millions. We have um, like several thousand members right. and the average member balance is say $20,000 because pretty young members. So, yeah, tens, tens of so millions you, of dollars. you are actually targeting a, a younger audience. So, in other words, not younger audience, but like younger membership. Yeah, look, we when we were setting this up, we thought, we would only get young members, but we've actually found we do get the full spectrum. I mean, right. youngest members are teenagers and our oldest members are- How do you find them? In the 60s. Um, well, how do they find you, more importantly? They find digital marketing. Yeah. So that's something, I mean, we've only just sort of got going the last year properly. Yep. Um, but the great thing is we designed our technology to be as easy and user-friendly as possible because no one wants to be harassed by their super fund. Yeah, but <laughs> in terms of joining up or yeah, in exactly. terms of so finding you? you know, where, I mean, where are you floating around? Like, uh, So how are you, how are you tracking um, future members? So uh, social media yep. and just online, right? right? So if people see a Facebook story, they can come on the website, look at all of our properties, check it all out. And if someone's like, oh, this is interesting or this is right for me, we, our technology allows you to find all your super and bring it all over very seamlessly and easily. Right. We, we spent a lot of time making sure that that process was easy for someone to do. Um, I think we found people are generally quite afraid of their super. They view it like doing their taxes and it's yeah, yeah, easy totally. to put off. Yeah, especially younger people. Yeah, so we, we just wanted to make it transparent and easy for people to actually take a bit of control themselves. And, uh, and you've been there since, did you say 2016? 
No, so, well, look, setting up a super fund's a pain in the ass. Yeah, yeah, totally. Um, so it actually took us two years. Yeah, rules and regulations. Yeah, licensing rules, regulations, business plans, yeah. mandates, everything. We got up and running in 2018. Um, but that was more, it was still testing. It was friends and family, making sure all of our technology was working really smoothly. Um, it was also a very funny time for the property market. Yeah, it was. Recall. It was quite weird. It's so, like it's starting to kick back in now. Yeah, look, and as an investor, it was actually good for us because we were looking at things going, well, this is actually a great time to be buying. Yeah, 100%. Um, if you had a board two years ago, you'd be making money now. Yeah. So we, we actually like, yeah, nabbed one or two places which have already started going up in value, so yeah, we're pretty yeah. happy. Um, but then this year, 2019, we started marketing and, yeah, the response has been very, very good. So uh, you, how do you make a quid out of it? So. You 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 control the management company. Is that how it works? Or yeah, so the way it works, like as a super fund, fees are always you know very front of mind, yep, and you yep. have to be very competitive. So our fees, like there's admin fees and investment fees. We get a an investment fee for the property component. Right. Do you get overs? In other words, you got a performance fee in there? No, no performance fee. Um, no, no performance fee. Wow. No. Well, look. W- on fees, we actually wanted to – one of our products is actually the cheapest product on CanStar and Finder and everything. Right. And we set out to make something that was very appealing because – What is it, under half a percent or what is it? Yeah, what? it's under half a percent. Yep. So like I think it's like 45 bips. So, that, what, so what we're talking about here to the audience is that um, uh, he's got one product which if you're, 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 if you're a member of it and you put your dough into it, he's only going to charge you – Grant's Fund's only going to charge you half a percent per annum or, or less. Yeah, so – Look, the, the way everyone's compared, like in all the PDS documents, and Mark, you'd know this, um, they always work off like a $50,000 comparison. That's how they do it. So the fees on ours are $291.50. And yeah. like as an example, Australian Super, who's the biggest super fund, and I think they have like $150 billion or something like that, the default fee is $417. Right. So, so yeah. you, you've priced your way in. Yeah, exactly. It's like you know, 30% cheaper. If I was to ask you, what was the, the problem you're trying to solve? <clears throat> by doing this? Sure. The problem we we're trying to solve is that there's a massive group of Australians who might never own property. And we wanted those people to have still get the benefit of financial expose, exposure to the asset class. We didn't want them to miss out. We don't want someone to go through their whole life and then be like, oh, shit, you know, I never owned any property. And how do you explain that problem to people when they don't quite know how to articulate the problem they have? So the... It is a tricky one sometimes. It's more the way we talk about it with people is most Australians understand property and they understand, well, I've got my superannuation and if I invest that in houses in 30 years' time, I think that'll be an okay investment. Yeah, so you, that, that requires quite a bit of marketing because you've got to get that message out there. It does. What question have you got for me because I'm doing all the questioning here? What do you, sure. what do you want to ask me? So I actually – I looked at your background, Mark, and the, the thing that I'm really interested in, so back when you were first starting up Wizard, right? So I'll take you way back here. Mm-hmm. Um, 40s of age. Yep. So when, when you were first setting up, like I, the numbers, they said you started in about 1996. Um, yep. And then in 1999, Kerry Packer got involved as a mentor and investor mm-hmm. and so on. So in order for Kerry Packer to get involved, you obviously did a lot of things right, right? Mm-hmm. So I'm wondering before he got involved and while you were setting everything up and building it, were there any mistakes you made or what were your biggest learnings? Because we're still in our first few years. So I'm interested to hear about your first few years and what you took away from that. Well, in terms of mistakes, it was all about um, how much money it was going to cost to keep the doors open. So we never really knew. Um, but we thought we kept, we kept building models, but the models kept failing. 
So uh, and and to some extent, you can't when you're just when you're just setting up opportunities arise. For example, state of origin opportunity arose in '98. Um, that was going to cost us two hundred fifty thousand um, dollars. That was never in our uh, budgeting, um, but I knew it was a great opportunity, so I actually put the money in myself personally. I sold my house to do that, um, so that was a big deal. Um, and so I guess probably the the biggest issue during that period um, pre Kerry was having enough patient capital to do the things that arose outside of your own budgeting process. Um, and patient capital, I think, is really important. You know, whether it's friends, family, yourself, selling something yourself, like just you just got to have that patient capital because if you if you stick to your budget, that's great, but you're going to miss out on opportunities. A bit like when you had the opportunity with Dave, David Paradis, it doesn't cost you money, but you had to get off your ass and do it. Um, that was a great opportunity. Um, for me, um, in the wizard days, the great opportunity was when um, the, the Super League war was on and Tui's pulled out of a sponsorship and a friend of mine who was at the NRL, wasn't called the NRL in those days, but was at the Australian Rugby League, said to me, look, we don't have a sponsor going to State of Origin. Would you like to get on the front of the jersey? Um, but it's going to cost you a quarter million bucks, um, which is pretty cheap. It used to cost a million dollars a year prior to that, before the Super League war. So I, I saw an opportunity. It's cheap. I didn't think about it too much. I said yes. So I, I employed all the sorts of things that you did. But I was lucky enough that I had the ability to go outside of my budget environment. So cap, I had some capital because I had, and I had to sell an asset. I had to make a sacrifice. I had to take a big risk. I was married, had kids, so I, you know, I had to, I, I had to put everyone into rental premises. But I also understood well enough my margins, my, my market share, my potential for market share. I understood how to get my pricing out there into the market and get below everybody. And actually, the state of origin was a good opportunity for me to push my brand. So um, that was probably the 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 biggest um, the biggest challenges for me at the time was capital. The the biggest advantages I got was having someone who told me about something that existed at the time, and me then being able to take a risk to do it. And I'll be honest with you, being on the state of origin jerseys, what got Kerry's attention. So because he was a mad rugby league follower, yeah. so. All those things sort of worked in my favour, but they wouldn't have worked if I'd have said, oh, shit, I can't afford to do that. I don't want to sell the house because I'm worried about where my family's going to live. Um, you know, I just said I'm all in or I'm out altogether. So, yeah, I, I I guess I was a bit of a punter, a gambler in that respect, but I backed myself, but like you did. You backed yourself, like when you said you get up in the blocks, you back yourself to win the event. Um, I, I, I'm a bit that way myself. I mean, it doesn't matter if someone, I know someone's better than me or they have a better reputation than me in something, whatever it is. Generally speaking, I'll back myself to win. And I, I also, I was talking about someone the other day. I also have a view, like, let's say you're a swimmer and you're, and you're trying to get to Olympics or you're a boxer and you're trying to win. I take the view is it's not about winning or losing. I, I say, when you get on those blocks, you're there to do your business. Your business is to swim that race as hard as you can doesn't matter whether you win or lose. You want to win, but it doesn't matter. It's about swimming your race as hard as you can. When you jump in the ring to fight, you know, and you might be Brock Jarvis, you're jumping in the ring to fight, you know, to, to improve your ranking from 12 in the WBA down to five, and you're jump, jumping against some Filipino guy or a, a Japanese guy who's your weight division because he's in the lower weight division. You're jumping, that's your business. Today, it's your business. You're in the business of that. And I used to think about my business. It doesn't matter to sell my house. I'm in the business of giving people home loans and I'm in the business of making everyone aware of my great interest rate. And like you, you're in the business of 
making sure everybody's aware that there's this great asset class that you've created in a fund that they can now invest in. And it, you've got to take risks around that and you've got to back yourself into the business. And I say to everybody, like, stop fucking thinking about it. Stop overthinking it. Stop overanalyzing. You, you can overanalyze this shit. Yeah. And then never do anything. Uh, it doesn't mean you're not conservative. It just means you never do anything. So I think that's probably the thing in that probably more so 97, 98, particularly 98, um, and Kerry came in 99, but 98, that was a big decision for me. And the second big decision for me was, and this sounds a bit ridiculous, but I was lucky. See, Commonwealth Bank was owned by the government just prior to 98. And the Commonwealth government decided to um, make it a listed entity and they listed half, then they listed 100%. And when they did that, Commonwealth Bank thought they had to do something in February 2000, uh, February 1999. They came out with an interest rate which was 5.99 or was it 6.99? I can't remember, but it was one of those two. In February 1999, the year that Kerry invested in me. And, but at this stage, she hasn't invested in me. I was doing, and I was doing State of Origin as well. And what I did, I thought I'll be a smart ass. I come out with a rate of uh, one basis point lower. Because they, they dominated the, the headlines. Everywhere. Yep. And everyone couldn't believe that the Commonwealth Bank had come up with this great rate. They did it because they just listed. So they had to do something. You know how this works. You just listed. You have to do something interesting. So they come up with this great interest rate. It was a fantastic interest rate. What I did is I came up with the same interest rate, one, one basis point lower. So I basically leveraged off their leverage. Yeah. And uh, because I was leveraging off, leveraging off the biggest bank in the country, um, everyone picked it up. And the, and the headline was Wizard Leads with Magic Rate. Fin review, front page. Like I never, I'm not a marketing guy. I didn't know that, but I just, I just knew that I would just stick it up them. And it was, a, what was I going to lose? One basis point. And my cost of business was much cheaper than theirs anyway. So I still made good margin. And I, then, then all of a sudden I started to realize, shit, if I can just keep my rate under the banks and whatever they do, I just come under them every time. And whatever they did, it's like going on an auction, someone bids a thousand, you can bid a thousand and one. So that's sort of what I was doing. I was playing this game. And I think that along with my sponsorship of, of New South Wales side, by the way, in those days we used to win the Origin Series. Um, that hey, got, I, I remember. <laughs> that got Kerry's attention. And there you go. And I, I think they were, they were some of the most exciting things I ever did. I, I, to a large extent, you know, I, was, I didn't know what I was doing, but it was unreal. It was fun. And, um, and a lot of that comes down to your youth. You're young. I was younger. And I would, I would, I'd have a crack. Maybe I'll be a bit more defensive these days. I play a bit more defensive because I'm older. But one of the things I know when you're around your territory and up to the, in your 40s, you know enough about what you're doing to make good considered decisions, but you're young enough and you've got not that much to lose, you'll actually make, you, you'll take a bit of risk. And that's fucking important, you know, like taking that little bit of risk. You're, you're right now, you're 31. Is that right? 30? 32. 32. Okay. You're a little bit old now, Alex, maybe a few months, not much. Um, so you're at that point in your life between here and 45 are your best years because you're young enough to still take risks um, and not put everyone in jeopardy, but you're experienced enough to know how to measure your risks and how to de-risk the really weird shit. So it's a great time. between. I always say between 30 and 45 – are your, is that, that should be your purple patch. So hopefully that answered your question. Thanks, Mark. You're welcome. Thanks very much for coming in. Great. Thank you. Thank you. 